Nehemiah chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait to find out next what happens next with Nehemiah. It's a good story. Nehemiah 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to your ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this problem. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year until the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Thank you, Brother Jeff. Let's have a word of prayer. 
God, we thank you now for the opportunity to turn to your word. Lord, we've had a wonderful time in the Lord's house today. Father, enjoyed worshiping you in song and just the fellowship and just to be with God's people is always good. Lord, if we were to say amen and go home right now, it would have been a profitable time. And yet, Father, you have given us this book. And Father, you have given it for our benefit and for our use. And I pray today that you would speak to us from it. Lord, as we continue now in our study in Nehemiah, I pray that, uh, Father, as we come to this somewhat interesting passage, that, uh, Lord, you'd apply it as only you know how. I'm always amazed, Father, at how you apply the word, even even in uh, passages like this, which seem to be uh, remotely relevant. Uh, yet, Lord, you've managed to apply them to our hearts in wonderful ways. And so I pray you would today. Speak to these, your people, as they need it. Teach us all and start with me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit today. I need you today and I pray that you would work in my heart and uh, fill me and use me for your glory today. Uh, just uh, talk to us about Jesus now, we pray in his name. Amen. We have been for a while, uh, a few weeks now anyway, in a study in the book of Nehemiah. We've called this study Building and Battling and Becoming because those are the three main topics that take place in this book. Uh, in, the, in the book of Nehemiah, as, as you if you're visiting with us today, I'll just give you a brief background. In the book of Nehemiah, we have this man named Nehemiah who had been a cupbearer to Artaxerxes in Shushan the palace, so that was in Persia. And he heard about the state of the walls of Jerusalem in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he felt like he needed to go and do something about that. And so the, the topic of the book of Nehemiah is him going to Jerusalem and becoming the governor of that province and, and leading the people there in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we've seen some things. We've been through the first four chapters already. In chapter one, we, look, we see that he learned of the problem there. And we saw a little bit of it his heart as he, uh, he was so concerned about their, their need. And he determined to do something about it. He realized that uh, if not him, who? And so he decided to go. In chapter two, we see him journeying there. We see him actually making his plans and, and the preparation that's taking place there. In chapter three, we saw him assembling his team, an amazing team of people from all different walks of life and all different responsibilities and, and, uh, and, and, and talents and, and, uh, and abilities. And he assembled that team and then he got to work and we see in chapter 3 the wall started to go up. And then in chapter 4, the last time that we met, we see that the rot started to set in and we started to see some opposition and some problems begin to reach uh, the project. We did see in chapter 4 that the, the wall had reached the halfway point, which was kind of an exciting thing. But we also saw that there was opposition that started uh, from without. Chapter 4, verse number 1, we read that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Verse number 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build it, even a box stood up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And so ridicule from the enemies of God started from without. And if we read a little bit further in chapter 4, we see it escalated long and well beyond ridicule, that it became actually threats of danger, threats of harm. And so uh, there was, there was some, some opposition that was raised. And we also saw in chapter 4 that some opposition from within took place. The people were starting to get tired. They built this wall up halfway and fatigue began to set in. Discouragement began to set in. One of my uh, favorite verses, I didn't write it down, I'm sure I can find it here somewhere. Verse number 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And so just the enormity of the task, there was just so much to do and so much difficulty and so much rubbish and the people were beginning to feel overwhelmed at it. And so all those were kind of enemies from within that were setting in and beginning to put the project in danger. Well, now we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, I would suggest that we see an enemy arise. 
an, a form of opposition arise here that poses a bigger threat than any that we saw in chapter 4. And one that really, uh, really got Nehemiah's attention. And so the question has to come as we look at this is, uh, is it going to stop the project? Are the walls going to go out as we see what took place in chapter 5? Is it, is it going to continue? Is it going to stop? Uh, what's going to happen? So let's, uh, let's dig into it and see. If, if you are one who likes to take notes this morning, we have three main points today. Three main points. Number one, what was the problem? Number two, what was the solution? And number three, what was Nehemiah's example throughout the whole thing? What was the problem? What was the solution? What was Nehemiah's example? First of all, the problem is stated in verses 1 through 6. In a nutshell, if you look at verses 1 through 6, I, I think it's pretty clear to you when you read that what the problem was. The problem was economic hardship. Do you see that in there? Economic hardship was threatening the project. There was people who were struggling financially. And as a result, a great complaint, it says verse number 1, a great outcry or a complaint of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren took place. As we read those first six verses, we can't help but see, can we, the, kind of the same things we hear about today. The same kind of economic hardship. You know, we're going through a hard time in America right now, uh, economically. Um, we're still one of the richest and greatest countries in the world, and yet uh, we, we have all kinds of problems recently, economically. And so we read this, and it's almost like reading our newspaper, is it not? As we read about the things that were taking place. Well, what was taking place? What were the, what were the complaints? One, one person put it like this. He said, in the first five verses, there were three classes of people who were listed and who were complaining of hardship. First, there were families who had no property, and the building was working a hardship on them. Second, there were some families who had property, but they had to mortgage it to meet their expenses. And so here's landowners who would seem to be the kind of people who were, were a little bit better off, and yet the, the hardship was such that they were having to mortgage their properties, and then they were in trouble. Verse number three, there were others who were having to borrow money to pay taxes. That sounds kind of familiar to us in America, doesn't it? They had pledged their crops, and when there were none, their children were taken as slaves in payment. Another person said it like this. Three classes of people are mentioned here. Number one, the landlords who were short of food. Number two, the landowners who were compelled to mortgage their properties. And number three, those who were forced to borrow money at exorbitant rates and sell their children into slavery because of their debt indebtedness. And so now, all of those seem to be, other than the fact that we seldom have to sell our children into slavery, I don't think that happens in America today, but other than that, they're all kind of similar things to what people face today, are they not? Economic hardship was the specific problem. Now I want to suggest today that we could look at this passage and we could, we, could, we could look at it very narrowly, very specifically, and say that's what it's about. And I do want to explain that and talk about that. But we could also look at it in a more broad way. And so I'd like for a few moments this morning to do both of those things. First of all, let's consider the very narrow explanation, the exact explanation of what was taking place here. Now I want you to notice verse number one says, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. The problem here was not just that the people were in debt, although that was a problem. It's always a problem. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school class. The problem here was not just that people couldn't feed their families, although that too is a problem. It was certainly a problem for them. The very specific problem here that Nehemiah was having to deal with was that the Jews were having to borrow money. And they were borrowing money from their Jewish brethren. Do you notice that? That's very key. Against their Jewish brethren in verse number 1. They were borrowing money from their Jewish brethren, and apparently these Jewish brethren, which would have been the nobles and the rich, the rich Jews who lived in that area, uh, were charging them interest on those loans. Now you might say that's not that important of a thing, but the problem was that was a complaint.
complete and total violation of the law. That was a violation of the Mosaic law. To lend uh, on interest to a fellow Jew, to your brother or your sister, was something that was clearly forbidden. Let me read you some verses. Deuteronomy chapter 15, and verse number 7 says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren, within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him. And your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy, and your land. Another place, Leviticus chapter 25, it was worded like this. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him. Well, that's pretty stinking clear, isn't it? Take no interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. One more verse, Deuteronomy chapter 23, you shall not charge interest to your brother. Again, I don't know how much clearer it could have gotten. Do not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out of interest. To a foreigner you may change interest. Charge interest. But to your brother you shall not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian in his antiquities, addressed this thing. He said it like this. He said, Let it not be permitted to lend upon usury to any Hebrew either meat or drink, for it is not just to draw a revenue for the misfortunes of a fellow country. You know, Josephus is not inspired scripture. Josephus is just a historian. It's not the inspired word of God. We would do well to dwell on that little phrase, wouldn't we? As, as he worded it very well. It is not just to draw a revenue from the misfortunes of a fellow countryman. Rather, in consoling him in his distress, you should reckon as gain the gratitude of such persons and the recompense that God has in store for an act of generosity. So was it wrong under Mosaic law for them to lend money to somebody in need? No. Some of those verses said, go ahead and lend. That was not the problem. Was it wrong according to Mosaic law though to lend money at a rate of interest to a fellow Jew? And the answer was absolutely yes. That was of clearly a violation of the law. And that is what specifically they were crying out against their Jewish brethren for in verse number one. So that would be the narrow explanation of the problem. But let's think about it more broadly, because I, I, I think the issue is a little broader than that. I think stated more generally, we could say simply this. The cares of this life were becoming a distraction. The cares of this life were becoming a distraction. Now, in the rich nobles, that took the form of greed. It took the form of exploitation. It took the form of them enriching themselves at the expense of their less fortunate brothers and sisters. It took the form of selfishness in them. They were putting their selfish desires ahead of the project, ahead of their brothers and sisters' needs, ahead of the glory of God, which, by the way, is the real issue always throughout the book of Nehemiah. In the poor, uh, members the poor people, this was becoming a looming problem that was taking their minds off the work of God. And so I think, I think a more broad, general understanding of this would simply be the cares of this life would become a distraction. 
You might think, I can imagine some of you are sitting there saying, well, so what, who cares? But apparently this was a very big deal. Think about this for a minute. It, was, it must have been a big deal. There's a couple of clues here that tells us that Nehemiah thought this was a huge problem. First of all, uh, it's in verse number 6 where we read that it made him mad. Well, that alone ought to be enough to make us think he thought something was amiss. Not only did it make him mad, verse number 6, he says, I became very angry. Very. Every word in the Bible is important. Very angry. This, uh, this upset him. But the second reason that we realized that Nehemiah took this very, very seriously was the fact that he called a great assembly to address this issue. Did you notice that in verse number 7? Verse number 7, I have a serious thought. I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I call a great assembly against them. You say, well, so. Well, here's what. In chapter 4, we had had people attacking from outside, and he had not stopped the work. Did you notice that? We had had people ridiculing them and taunting them from the other side, and he had not stopped the work. When the danger rose to a sufficiently high level, he, he put policies and procedures in place, and he, he taught the people to, to arm themselves, and he had them holding a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, but he did not stop the work. Did you notice that? They kept right on building and they kept right on battling, but it wasn't a sufficient enough problem for them to stop the work. When they all got fatigued, they all got discouraged, they all got overwhelmed by all the distress of all the problems that was taking place, and they said, there's so much rubbish, we don't even know how to get through this thing. He encouraged them, he strengthened them, he preached to them, he said to them, remember your God, and he fired them all up and motivated them, but he did not stop the work. Now, all of a sudden, there's this great outcry about people lending money, and what does he do? Apparently, he called them all down from the wall, and stopped the work, and had a great assembly. I don't know, I don't know what else we could find here that would tell us how serious this problem was. To Nehemiah's mind at least, the problem was big enough to stop the building of the wall until it was dealt with. So that was the problem. Number two, let's look at the solution. Let's look at the solution. <coughs> the solution is in verses uh, 7, 7 through 13. And I think also, just as in point number one, I think we could look at this very specifically as it, as it applies to this usury problem, and also in a more broad perspective as well. Let's talk, first of all, and talk about uh, the usury problem. His, his solution to it was very simple. Look at verse number 10. Please let us stop this usury. Restore not to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. The solution was very simply, stop what you're doing and start doing the right thing. Stop what you're doing and give back what you have already taken. Very simple perspective. But if we think of it more broadly, I think what he was describing here, I think it's a good picture here of the more broad topic of repentance. What he was saying is you guys need to repent. You guys need to get right about this. These people who were lending at exorbitant rates were guilty of violating the, the law, were they not? They were disobeying the Bible. And the solution for them was the same as it is for us today when we do the same thing. Repent. Stop what we're doing. Turn from what they were doing. Turn to what was right. They needed to repent. And that's exactly what they did. I like, I like how it describes it. Verse number 8, I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Silenced and found nothing to say. They knew it was true. They recognized it. It was, it was sin in them. Verse number 12, they said, We will restore it. We'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
Verse number 13. All the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. This is a great picture of repentance, is it not? Turn from what they were doing and turn to what they should be doing. Stop what they were doing and restore what they should have, should never have taken in the first place. And so when the cares of this life become a distraction, we need to repent. I think that's the lesson. When we are guilty of not caring enough about our brothers and sisters as these nobles were not, I think we need to repent, just as they did. I, I entitled this message this morning, Stop and Restore, and I based that on uh, verses 10 and 11 there, where it says, please let us stop this usury and restore now to them, because I, I think that's the key. They saw what they were doing wrong, and they turned from it and repented of it. If you ever want to know what is a good illustration, or what is a good explanation of repentance, you need to go to Luke chapter 3, and I'll let you do that on your own. Uh, for your own study this week. But Luke chapter 3, of course, we have the story of John the Baptist. We had John the Baptist preaching, and his message was repent. And uh, if you read that story, you'll see that people said to him, well, wait a minute now, John, what does that mean? What does it mean to me to repent? And various different people came to him. Soldiers came to him, and publicans came to him, tax collectors came to him. And in every case, basically, here's what he said. He said, stop what you're doing, and start doing what God wants you to do. That's the definition of repentance that he gave them. And that was the solution here. The solution was repentance. They needed to stop. And they needed to restore what they had taken away. So, what was the problem? What was the solution? Number three. Let's notice the example of Nehemiah. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this one this morning. Because I want to, I want to spend the remainder of our time today on a couple of applications to this. But just, just briefly, the example of Nehemiah here today. Several different things in this passage we see. Uh, show us that he was an example to them in this area. Verse number 10 is one of them. He said, I also, with my brethren and my servants, and lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. It would seem from that verse that he had been lending all along. But the implication there is that he was not doing it uh, by charging interest. The implication is he was doing it correctly. Some commentators think that's not the case. Some commentators think what he was saying there was, uh, you know, I'm guilty of this too. Let us all get our hearts right. I suppose it's possible. But I don't think so. I think that he was, uh, he was giving, holding himself up there as an example. And then in verses 14 to the very end, we see him talking about how he had lived and holding up the lifestyle that he was living in, in front of them as an example. And notice some of the things that it says there. In verse number 14, we see that Nehemiah nor his brothers ate of the governor's provisions. Now, he was the governor. He was entitled to eat of the provisions uh, that were provided for the governor. Uh, but he chose not to do it. And he chose not to do it because that would have meant taxing the people. And that would have meant enriching himself based on the misery of others. And he chose not to do that. So he was a good example there. In verse number 16, we see that he continued to work on the wall. He was there to work. He was not there to acquire land. He says specifically, I didn't buy any land here. I didn't come here to enrich myself. I didn't come here to acquire possessions. He was there for the work, not for personal enrichment. He believed in the task. He was there for that. And so he's a good example. And then in verse number 17, and following, we see that not only did he not put additional burdens on the people, not only did he, uh, did he, not, uh, did he, did he set the right example by working alongside them and not trying to enrich himself, but also, if you look at verses 17 and following, you see that out of his own personal expenses, he provided for vast numbers of people, hundreds of people he fed out of his own pocket. So he was a tremendous example of this. And I would suggest the very reason that he... He took this so seriously, he describes for us in verse number 15. Verse number 15. He says, The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. 
because of the fear of God. Nehemiah cared too much about the name of God, the glory of God, the work of God, the people of God, to risk that for personal enrichment. So that was his example. That was his example. And I want to sum this up this morning, and I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about how it might apply, because I do believe it applies to us. We see here that economic hardship and the cares of this life were threatening the work of God, right? We see that specifically the greed of some of the Jewish community was threatening the work of God. And we see that Nehemiah's solution was, number one, stop the exploitation. But on a more general level, to lead them to repent and to get right about these things. And I, although it's not specifically stated here, I, I do believe that we would be correct in saying that uh, obviously the building project resumed as a result of this. The, the solution must have worked. Because we're going to see next week, they're going to, they're going to keep right on building. And we're going to see here very, very shortly that the wall doesn't go all the way up. And so those people who were crying and threatening to come down and threatening to quit because they had to go and, and, and take up another job to feed their family, uh, they obviously the solution was solved. And I'm also certain that it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that the relationships between the various peoples were strengthened as well. Whereas they were upset with their brethren before. You suppose they were still upset after their brethren restored to them all of their, all of the money they've been lending. So I think that there were some good things that took place. And relationships were strengthened. Three applications I want to close with and then we'll be done. Three applications that I think as we think about all these specific things, and we try to apply them to ourselves here, Friendship Bible Church, Randolph, Ohio, 2011. Three applications I want to think about. Number one, the cares of this life can interfere with the work of God if we let them. The cares of this life can interfere with the work of God if we let them. You know I don't know if you noticed this or not. I find it very interesting that Nehemiah did not say to the people who were complaining, yeah, you're right. Your family and its needs are more important than the work. Did he say that? It's funny, I don't see that in there. It's compelling that he did not say, go ahead and come on down from that wall now and attend to those issues. You, you see that in there? I, I don't see that. I don't see it because it's in there. What he did do was everything he could to solve the problem and allow them to continue to work because the work was important. It needed to be done. And one of the implications of this passage is that the work of God is more important than these other issues. And those other issues were distractions that needed to be dealt with and solved. And yet, I hear no excuse more commonly than, quote, I have to work for you. Unquote. It doesn't seem to fit with what I'm reading there. Except there's maybe one other excuse that I hear more often, or as often, and that is, quote, family comes first, preacher, unquote. How do those fit in there? You see, the fact is, both of those are absolute devilish lies. Lies of Satan, which absolutely distract us from the work of God. How do they, how do they jive with the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 37 when he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. How, how do we fit those thoughts together? Doesn't seem to work. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I, I don't get that comparison. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse number 62, Jesus said, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, the fact is, I think if we allow even good things, and these are good things, good things like jobs, thank God for jobs, but where would we be if we didn't have some means to provide for our family? I'm not saying it ain't all the job, but good things like jobs and good things like family, thank God for family. I love my family. You love your family. 
But you know what? If we allow it, even good things like that, the devil will use to displace God in our lives. And I think that's one of the lessons. It's never God's will. Jobs do not come first. I don't care what kind of career you have. It should not be the first thing in your life. God comes first. Family does not come first. I know that sounds strange, and you may run me out here. If you want to run me out, go ahead and run me out. I don't care. But that's not the Bible. I know a lot of preachers stand up and talk about family. It's not true. God comes first. Why do we have trouble with that? It's such a simple, it's the very first thing. In the beginning, God. It's the very first words of the Bible. God comes first. And when we get our priorities right in these areas, you know what I believe? I believe God blesses us in every way. I believe our economic prosperity will be better. Our job situation will be better when we put God first. I believe our families will be stronger and sweeter and relationships better when we put God first. God comes first. I think that's one of the lessons, one of the applications. Second application is this. We need to care about our brothers and sisters. We need to care about our brothers and sisters. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Galatians 2.10, we should remember the poor. How clear. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. I leave it to your personal conscience this morning to determine whether or not you're in your walk with Christ you care more about the needs of your brothers and sisters and you do about your own personal prosperity and your own personal enrichment but I think all of us need to take inventory there I know I do I know I do unfortunately I think many of us care way too much about our own selves our own personal lifestyles our own personal comfort levels and not enough about those who have needs around us our church has had a benevolence fund for years and we have tried to help some folks and you know, there have been some and there's probably some here yet today who, who have uh, uh, been helped in some ways by that and, and we've always tried to be there but you know lately we've had some very interesting leadership team meetings and lately at some of our leadership team meetings some of our guys have, have convicted me greatly about this and left me feeling like we're just simply not doing enough we're just simply not doing enough we need to care about one another and then finally number three the last application I would make from this passage is this we need to be people of the book we need to be people of the book. Remember these nobles. These people were people who knew what the law said. They knew it. They knew that it said don't lend on usury. They just chose to ignore it. They simply chose to ignore it on this particular instance. And I wonder this morning, how often is that like us? We know what the Bible says. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to hear this particular part. And so we just push that, side, that part aside. Let me read you a quote from one of my favorite commentators. Uh, uh, he was one of my favorite when we were going through Acts. And his commentary on Nehemiah is also absolutely awesome. His name is James Montgomery Boyce. And he said this, listen to this. He said the nobles of Nehemiah's day were disobeying the teaching of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Why is it that so many within the evangelical church take the revealed law of God so casually? It is no surprise that the world does this. The world does not receive the Bible as God's book. But we do. We even maintain that it is inerrant in the whole and in its parts. How then can we take it so lightly? How then can we say, as I have heard many so-called evangelicals say, that that specific teaching was for that day and not for today? Or how can we say, well, we have to be realistic. Life just doesn't fit those clear-cut categories. 
We play loose with the scriptures, and we need to repent of it. We need to become people of the book, in fact, and not just in our profession. Unquote. Well, I read that, it just, it just convicted me. These people were ignoring the teaching about usury, but they were no different than you and I. They were no different than us when we ignore certain aspects of the Bible and say, well, it doesn't apply to me. I spoke with a man one time about baptism. Baptism, which is clearly taught as a step all Christians should take. The response was, I don't feel compelled to do that. I don't feel compelled to do that. But you know, people of the book don't do things. They don't obey just when they feel compelled. They obey because it's in the book. In the story. And so we need to be the people of the book. Not just when we feel like it. Always. James said, prove yourselves doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delete, delete themselves. Well, I'm out of time, and so I'm going to quit. I'm sure there's probably some other applications we could come up with there. Applications we could derive from the passage, but there's three for you to chew on a little bit. Some of them probably make you mad. It's good for you. It's good for you. Let's pray God helps us not be distracted by the cares of this life. Amen? And let's pray that God helps us to love one another in a real way, not just in word. And let's pray that God molds us into a people of the book. Not just people who talk about the book. People who live it in reality. Not just when we feel about it. But always.